to The New Disruptors, a podcast that explores whether money talks and if anybody walks in the new economy. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. It started as Twitter banter and turned into a blockbuster Kickstarter. The Internet's Jonathan Colton and the comic world's Greg Pak have known each other since college. And when Greg put the bug in Jonathan's ear about creating a series of comic books based on heroes and villains in Jonathan's songs, they began applauding. A few months later, Code Monkey Saves World launched as a crowdfunding campaign, blew through its initial goal, and kept stretching and stretching in a way that might strain even Mr. Fantastic or Plastic Man. Jonathan and Greg join me to talk about how they planned, executed, and extended their project. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's great to have you guys here to talk about something that's so fresh. When we recorded this, the Kickstarter campaign's been over for days. Are you guys, are you like that sort of post-money release letdown now? Are you like, ah? Oh. <laughs> I'm mostly realizing how much of my other work I neglected while the Kickstarter was going on. Yes, I did on that. I uh, I spent the weekend uh, catching up on a lot of stuff, but uh, and for fun, I started writing Code Monkey Save World Number One. Which oh, that's was awesome! Good. That's good because you <laughs> have to put on. You you guys had a very intensive campaign, so for a month you were sort of in this uh, this bubble of like ecstatic Kickstartering. Yeah, it, it's been you know it's funny because before we started, my friend Jamal Eigel, who uh, is a great comic book creator and who. Uh, did a Kickstarter a few uh, months back for his all-ages book, Molly Danger. I just kept coming to him for advice and, and questions and all that kind of stuff. And at some point, he told me that basically that it would take six hours a day. And I oh was like, God. what? Are you kidding me? And then, you know, it pretty much does take about six hours a day. You know what I mean? If you're going to really ride it and try to be interactive and respond to people's questions and, and also uh, if the project is – cooking along and you're trying to come up with stretch goals and, and do all of those different things. It takes a lot of time. It's a, I mean, it, it really does feel like a full-time job on top of the other full-time jobs we already have as freelancers. That is a great insight because I think uh, it's not that people think that, you know, hey, you do all this planning work, then you hit the button and you sit back. I think folks are more savvy in general to know that you have to manage a campaign and be involved in it. But that's a, that's a huge commitment for people actually have other, you know, self-imposed or externally imposed work that you have to do. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, the thing is, it kind of filled into the time that uh, some freelancers, not myself, of course, but some freelancers might just use noodling around on Twitter anyway. I wouldn't know who that uh, <laughs> <laughs> You know, Lord forfend that I should be one of those. Uh, I, I thought it was all about making money while you slept. So if this is making money while you're working, yeah. another way of working. No, it, it does kind of fill in that procrastination time. I mean, honestly, it was all a blast. You know what I mean? It really was. Um, I, I, you know, if you if you enjoy it, it's fun. That's a very self evident statement, isn't it? <laughs> but, uh, but it's true. You know what I mean? If you're if you're the kind of person who likes you know interacting with people on the internets and uh, and likes that sort of social media aspect of our lives as uh, freelancers these days, then the whole Kickstarter thing actually can be a ton of fun, and it really was. Yeah, and especially if your project does as amazingly well as ours did. I mean, you know that that certainly made it a lot of extra fun. Yeah, too, exactly. It was like we kept having these adjusting our expectations expectations to ever more ridiculous levels and uh, the internet continued to surprise us it was like every day it was like really we had this very modest goal it was thirty nine thousand dollars i remember we did a uh, interview a pre-launch for boing boing about it and i i started laughing when you said thirty nine thousand dollars i'm like oh come on and and you know but i understand why you did it because uh, there's a there's that point at which you want to say, once we've hit this, we know we can do it and everything else is sort of gravy. But, but it was still in my head, the number, the secret number I had in my head was $200,000. So I guess I was right and wrong because you 
who zoomed by that. But I was like, 39 grand, that's like, you know, half a day's work. And, and how quickly did you hit the goal? It was like half a day or something, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, we hit 39,000 in seven hours and seven minutes. I actually went back and looked. It was crazy. <laughs> I mean, that seemed like a ridiculous amount of money to us at the time. I mean, it's totally realistic to do, you know, to do at the, at the time when we planned out 39,000, that was to do a 60 page graphic novel and to pay everybody what they are worth, which was incredibly important to us from the beginning. We didn't want to do a project where, you know, where we were asking people to work for free or work on a, you know, for cheap. We wanted to be able to really pay people what they're worth because, you know, if you can do it, that's the way it should be done. Uh, I think coming up in independent projects, we're all used to working for free from time to time, but I think we're all at the state, uh, you know, where if we can, if we can avoid that, uh, we should, and we should, uh, we should pay folks. Uh, so, so that was, you know, the plan from the beginning, but still, you know, 39,000, that was, that's a, Felt like a lot of money to be asking, uh, honestly. And uh, what's well, uh, well, funny when we you ask for one piece because you've certainly, I mean, between the two of you, there's some millions and millions of dollars over your careers that have been brought in either directly or through third parties and cooperation. So you know that there's some, you know, maybe it's tens of millions of dollars of gross sales of all the stuff that you guys do, and you see some sliver of a sliver of that at the end of the day. Hopefully, it gets bigger <laughs> over time. But you know, let me introduce the audience too. I, mean, I think what, what's fascinating to me about you two guys is. You know, it is that great superhero, supervillain mashup going on is that there are a ton of people, I think, who know you, Jonathan, through your music, a ton of people, Greg, who know you through comics and the film and other work you do. And it's that, you know, the superpower Wonder Twins combined where it's like, oh, who are these two guys? So, Jonathan, we did a podcast not that long ago about your career. Tell the nice people, what do you do with yourself these days? What is your life like? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, I, you know, I'm a professional singer, songwriter and entertainer. Um, so I, I uh, ostensibly Bowlby write, about write and, like like Burl Ives, that's right. right? That's more or less <laughs> like Burl Ives, very yeah, much okay. like Burl Ives. Uh, I I write songs, I record songs, I sell songs, and then I tour and do shows for people. And then you know there are a bunch of ancillary things like uh, Kickstarter projects and um, fan cruises and uh, <laughs> oh you know public radio I, I don't know. show. I have, I have a weird life and a yeah public radio show. I have a weird life and a weird job, but uh, that's. I guess that's sort of what it what it means to be an independent entertainer person, you know. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the, ideally, the focus of it is the is the music. It starts from there. And you own everything. You have no label that you're selling stuff to. This is all you have the rights to all your work. Yeah, that's right. So I, I'm a self published artist. So everything I do, I release myself, and I own everything. And uh, you know, I also, for the most part, run the business myself. I have help doing it. Uh, you know, and uh, sort of various a la carte services. I have a booking agent. I have a lawyer, but I don't have a manager, and I don't have a label. Uh, so it's a, a lot of what I do. In addition to the creative work, is is actually you know business business stuff, day to day work, and and running running the business. So you probably have an ongoing balance between actually being creative and doing the stuff that you actually want to do with yourself and managing that side of things. I do, and it's a weird struggle because they are such different uh, tasks that you know it's it's really hard to switch gears. I mean, when when, when it's time for me to write music, what I'm supposed to do is is uh, is uh, you know what I what I need to do to write music feels a lot like wasting time. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, and I, I, it, I mean, it really, it's the same mental state. You have to like not need to accomplish anything. <laughs> like that's, that's where you need to start if you're going to do creative work, at least for me. And so the contrast between that and the kind of hard, cold execution that you need to manage when you are working on a spreadsheet, you know, you've got to sit down and just do the work until it's done. And so it's two very different states of mind and it's hard. Uh, they can't coexist. So it's uh, it's definitely a challenge to successfully swing back and forth between them. I don't remember a pivot table song yet from you, but. You know, that could be uh, some someday, 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 perhaps the Excel ode to Excel. Uh, and Greg, I know that you have a you have kind of a more of a winding career, but you've always been in charge of, of what you do with yourself. It seems to me from from I, mean, I think the scope of the last 10 years is you came to more of a public attention with your film robot stories mm-hmm. for interconnected stories about different aspects of society, culture and, and robotics and sort of projecting in the future. But then you've done things like your vision comics, you've written comic books, you've developed characters on your own, you've worked with the major comic book labels how do you fit into your life the parts that are your own and the parts that belong to other people well like jonathan i'm i'm doing a bunch of different things at any given time and uh i i mean it 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 hasn't it's funny i'm the kind of person who you know i I love the fact that in college i was taking five different classes and uh they were all different and they bounced together in interesting ways and made me think about things differently i'd like to have multiple projects going at the same time just because it it opens up my head in different ways i'm always find myself thinking about that story about peter laurie when he was uh shooting the fritz lang movie m uh, at the same time he was shooting that movie which is about a child killer in dusseldorf it's incredibly intense it's a brilliant movie he was doing cabaret in berlin you know and uh and that that kind of combination of really silly silly work and really serious work going hand in hand i i mean that that kind of stuff has always appealed to me so the fact that like right now i'm working on this batman superman book for dc and i'm uh and i'm writing the eternal warrior which is uh, a a new book that's coming out from uh, valiant comics and i'm working on code monkey you know what I mean? like these are <laughs> awesome things to be doing all at the same time two of those are work for hire code monkey is creator owned i've got another couple of creator owned things i'm also doing right now that are uh, that are secret uh, but um but you know so i'm i'm always trying to balance uh, work for hire stuff and creator own stuff at the same time just because one just creatively there are things that you can do for work for hire that you know you can write batman for work for hire i can't write batman <laughs> creator owned um, you could i, I, guess, I could. guess i could i mean i i wouldn't get very far <laughs> you'd have to move to liberia i believe exactly. to do that though yes i could uh yeah well i've thought about when i i knew you as a comic book writer that's, that's sort of in the last few years i've seen your work and seen you you know on, on twitter and so forth and i didn't realize about the film until just recently how does filmmaking and comic book writing is there a, are those entirely different sets of skills do they intersect at storyboarding or what's the relationship between those two kinds of things well they're they're fundamentally related because they're both dramatic storytelling in the sort of lajos egrian sense uh lajos egri is the uh, <laughs> the guy everybody reads in uh, in film school and in uh, in you know if you take a screenwriting class you're probably going to read the art of dramatic writing which is the you know his classic book and and one of the big things is this idea that film, television, theater, 
and also comics, frankly, all work with dramatic storytelling as opposed to didactic storytelling or just straight narrative storytelling where, you know, like in a novel, you can just describe what happens. You can describe people's inner thoughts and you can kind of tell a rambling story. And, and that's the way it works. And people are cool with that. You can just tell people what's going on inside of somebody's head. If you're writing for film or television or for comics, the story is really being told through pictures, through scenes. And so instead of just telling people what people are thinking, you're, you're finding ways to dramatize it, you know, like... Like, you know, so instead of saying, you know, that, you know, he was in love with so-and-so, you have, you know, your character gazing longingly at somebody or, or picking up their coat and handing it to them in a, in a especially <laughs> in, intimate way that, that nobody else would realize means something. You know what I mean? So you find those, those small dramatic visual ways to convey the emotion. And, and great novels, of course, do that all, all the time as well. But uh, film, television, comics, these things are all driven by those images, by those scenes. I see. So these are these are all fundamentally related for you. So there wasn't that strange a move to be on the one hand making this you know sort of speculative uh, a movie about uh, that that combine this issue about you know what will robots be like in our future as kind of a big you know the big question, but with all these little stories, these sort of personal stories, and that is a direct relationship between that sort of storytelling and then what you do with either a creator owned or a brand owned comic. Yeah, it's all the same thing. And you know whether I'm working on a creator owned comic or or story or a uh, or a or a work. For hire piece for Marvel or DC or or Valiant or whoever, the conversations I have with my uh, you know with my creative partners are invariably the same. They're all about you know like what is this character, what does this character want, and what are the fun ways that we can show this person striving to achieve whatever that is. You know how how do you visualize those 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 struggles? And Jonathan and I actually right before we talked to you had just a, a a really fun conversation and a big breakthrough about like a fun visual thing that we can use to to, to set up Code Monkey at the very beginning of this story. You know so those. Those are the kind of conversations that when you're working on all, all this work, it's the same kind of work. And, and those are the that's the that's the real fun of it is finding those great ways to uh, dramatically, visually tell the story. Well, I mean, there, there are certainly big differences between writing for film and writing for comics. Um, you know, certain technical things that you can do in film that you can't do in comics and certain things about the way the script is formatted and how, how the thing is put together and all of that. But, you know, the, the, the fundamental, you know, thinking process is very similar. Well, and I was thinking this is a beautiful time with what Jonathan does with his songs is, you know, Jonathan, I know that your songs, you often create worlds in your songs. Does that, what what Greg's talking about in terms of this, uh, you know, the dramatic uh, approach to this, the way that you're creating the story, is that how you approach the songs? They come to you more fully formed or are you, or are you trying to create a world with each song? Well, I, I don't think, it, it's not as though I set out to create a world, but I, I think the way, the kind of songwriting that I like, my my favorite moments in songs are the ones that, um, as with many forms of storytelling, that tell you the story indirectly, so that you are able to learn new things about the story every time you you hear it or read it. So, you know, I, I think that when I'm trying to bash my way through a song, you know, and I have I have an initial idea, I kind of know what it's about, I kind of know what emotional effect I want it to have. As I try to think of things to say, it's just part of the process that instead of just going in directly and saying stuff, you you kind of it helps if you think about what else is going on and have somebody refer to what's going on, you know, in this sort of indirect way. Uh, so I think the backstory, uh, there's there's a lot of backstory there because it helps me figure out what the characters are going to talk about in the songs. 
And, uh, you know, the, so the backstory is sort of this structure that, uh, this shadowy structure that you can kind of see after you've listened to the song a few times, but it's not something that I, I set out to create directly, if that makes sense. I feel like I just talked nonsense for a minute. <laughs> no, no, I think, no, I think it's, it's that, uh, it's that, you know, you close your eyes and you're trying to feel the shape of something and you don't know what it is. Is it a rhinoceros, another person, a sculpture? And the more you feel, the more you get slapped in the face, but the more you also try to figure out what, what it is that that's there without having to have that explicit knowledge of, of the thing. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a rhinoceros, by the way. <laughs> so, you know, always a rhinoceros. Oh my, that really that puts my mind at ease after all that time. The, uh, <laughs> well, I was thinking about Skullcrusher Mountain, which is one of the anchors of this Kickstarter campaign, really, is that that song has that thing where you start out and you're like, what's going on here? And it's like, wait a minute, like, oh, you know, it takes a little bit. You're like, okay, that's what's happening. And then it gets sort of both funnier and creepier at the same time as you go along. Because you don't just say, I'm super villain Skullcrusher and here's my, I'm stolen this, kidnap this woman, I'm going to kill her. It, or I want her to be my girlfriend. It's like, you know, I've just spoiled the song for people who don't know. It. Uh, <laughs> spoilers, people, about the song. But but the song, I mean, that's one of the songs I know that led to uh, this conversation. You guys were, you know, Greg and you were bantering over Twitter. And it, it seemed like the storytelling aspect came out very strongly. And, you know, in this innocent set of tweets that have been preserved for posterity. Greg, what did you say to Jonathan? I'd forgotten now. I think I said something like uh, it occurred to me that Jonathan, you know, Colton songs have all of these uh, great superheroes, supervillains. They'd make a great supervillain team up, implying that, you know, I would like to make a comic book using these characters. <laughs> I don't know if I, I, I don't, I don't think I explicitly said, Jonathan, may I please have your permission to make a comic book using these characters? But uh, no, no, you didn't actually. And uh, you get a call from my lawyer. <laughs> But uh, but Jonathan clearly understood my intent because he promptly tweeted back uh, a simple two-word phrase, which is one of my favorite two-word phrases ever. Do it. And so we did. Well, it's and so that's that's funny that that was the genesis. As people saw that, and I think as you started hinting there was a secret. Greg, you're so good with secrets. You are so good with secrets. <laughs> <laughs> There's a tweet from Jonathan somewhere before you launched the campaign that's like, guys, secret project is secret. <laughs> <laughs> you're like i've got this thing coming and it involves it might involve and then, but uh but no. so as you got close to it some people went back and were like what is this thing these guys are working on and they found some of these tweets you're like i wonder if it has to do with that so started instantly enough now now when you came to this, so you had months obviously between those tweets and when the campaign was launched and i'm always fascinated about the planning aspect because when you see a well-executed campaign it's the iceberg part is you get 30 days or whatever period you set to run the Kickstarter campaign, but there's just the amount of machinery that needs to be in place. And you have all these collaborators. How much time, how far in the head were you planning with all these other folks to make this thing happen and budget what you needed for the minimum? Yeah, it was, um, I mean, it took a lot of planning. I mean, we, we traded those tweets in what, November, uh, December or January, we started bouncing uh, outlines back and forth of what, what the story might actually look like. And I think in uh, January, February, March, we just started, you know, we, we basically, between the two of us, said, yes, we're going to do this. And uh, I, we started approaching our creative team, pulling people on board and and started plotting out, you know, uh, putting together a budget. I'd recently done this uh, Vision Machine comic book, uh, which uh, is... Which is sun. now true. It's, you know, you did it uh, how many years ago? Two or three years ago? Right, now? exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think now it's entirely true. I was actually pitching a story to an editor, and I said, yeah, I want to take a look at this site, because this is all true now, and I'd like to write about how this became true. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's basically the story of Google Glass before Google Glass <laughs> happened. And, uh, and I have a friend with a novel that he wrote a few years ago. He's been kicking around, and I read a draft of it, and unfortunately, most it involved a 
Google-like company, and he's going to have to rewrite it because every week they come out with something new that is actually in his novel. <laughs> I know. I was just hugely – whenever you do a science fiction project like that, you're always really relieved when you can get it out in the world before everything happens. So, uh, yeah, I was pretty pleased. For example, with Code Monkey, we're, we're, we're very much hoping we can keep to our November deadline because uh, I believe that in December, actual monkeys will be coding. <laughs> Right. So, uh, well, it is yeah. Planet of the Apes time, so we're we're getting closer. Exactly. Exactly. But um, but yeah. So I'd done this, you know, Vision Machine project, which was of a similar scale, and so I knew what the budget for something like this might look like, and we, you know, so we were mm. passing those budgets back and forth, and you know, talking about you know how our uh, you know what this Kickstarter might look like and what kinds of uh, rewards we might offer, and uh, we spent a lot of time, and also you know, and I needed to you know just figure out how the heck Kickstarter actually worked, and and also figure we. Jonathan and I are both big warriors, I think. I don't think it's a big secret. I I think I can just say that. Um, And so, I mean, it's very good working with somebody who is uh, similarly worried about every aspect of things. So, um, you know, we each put together our spreadsheets uh, for, you can put that in quotation marks and call it attention to detail. Yeah, yeah. And then it sounds better. There you go. Let's take a break to thank a sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace. Yes, them again. Why are they trying to get you to use their website and blogging software that has drag and drop simplicity and a 14 day no credit card required free trial? I think I just answered that question. I try to get to know every sponsor's product or service so that when I tell you about it, I can speak from experience. I've spent months now using Squarespace's hosting, and I just imported my 12-year-old personal blog into their system, and I'm enjoying not having to redesign the site myself, but just use and tweak the templates and tools they provide. I like to write my blog entries in Markdown. They let me do that. I can drag in photos. I can throw in audio. I can have it automatically announced on Facebook, Twitter, and probably through Deep Space Relays when I have a new post. The whole point of Squarespace's website tools is not to take control out of your hands, but rather to let you only have to focus on the parts you want. So go try it. No credit card required for a 14-day trial. When you're ready to pay, use the new Disruptors 5 code for a 10% discount. Accounts start at $8 per month, but you'll be paying 10% less than that. Go to squarespace.com and at checkout, enter new Disruptors numeral 5 for that 10% discount. Now, back to the show. No, I spent I spent a long time before we before we launched, uh, basically going in and looking at stats for how uh, how the how the pledge levels broke down on average, like what percentage of people went with what amount of money, and I, I sort of plugged that in and uh, you know figured out what our levels were and tried to make sure that we had enough distribution and tried to make sure that given you know you could basically plug in a total number of backers and uh, see when you reach the point where you'd actually reach your goal and then how many things you'd have and all the shipping costs and all that stuff and uh, it's a pretty intense budget and and we but we and we were both and Greg had his own <laughs> version of the spreadsheet which came from the opposite direction yeah. <laughs> which was sort of like uh, item by ad, item uh, you know profit for each one and then trying to match that up with expenses and so it's like we were we were very uh cheered that uh once we both had our spreadsheets up and running they seemed to be suggesting the same numbers at the same level so we yeah. felt like we were on track yeah they were within three percent of each other two or three oh percent God. of each other it was amazing that's like, that's like the two guys digging the tunnel on either side of the uh english channel right and you came it turns out you actually meet up in the middle yeah it was awesome or you, uh, for a while, two tunnels for the price of one for a while there was a 10 percent difference and then i discovered a horrible <laughs> mistake in my numbers so. So it was very good that we were both doing it. 
Um, oh, that's really funny because that is the thing. People underestimate the amount of time and the amount of money it takes for everything that you do. Yeah, um, and then there's also you know there's there are things that we had to you know take into account like the fact that you know uh, Kickstarter gets five percent and Amazon takes some number between three and five, and I think in the end it's three point three, and then uh, right. and then also you have to account for a certain percentage of the final uh, pledges not going through. You know, and uh, so right, which and, is like one or two yeah, percent. sales tax, and you know, oh yeah, that's a you know that's interesting. So you're paying. See, that's well, this could be uh, this would be an entire very boring episode of the new disruptors talking about the tax implications of crowdfunding. <laughs> but uh, it is something that freaks people out a little because uh, in Washington State, where I live, there's a business and occupation tax, and there's still ambiguity about whether because Amazon. These are essentially individual transactions you get from these thousands of people. They're bundled together mm-hmm. and given to you. It's not like Kickstarter is writing you a massive check from Kickstarter, which is an intermediary. It's more like a facilitator of allowing other people to charge you through Amazon. So it's this weird thing. And I'm still a little concerned about the gross tax situation we have here where I might need to pay 2.5% to the state before – anything happens. But mm. if I do it personally, is it then a business? And you guys went out in front of that and just said, we're paying New York state sales tax on this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're yeah. I mean, that's, that's the assumption in, in our, in our spreadsheets is that, is that that's you're shipping out do. some yeah. physical, and, you know, physical objects, electronic objects or sales tax burden attached to the money. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, The state will probably love that. So that's a good thing that, that actually, I mean, it does insulate you from the problem of then being audited by and, you know, put into court for, for sales tax avoidance. So, ah, theoretically, yes. we'll see. Well, that's, right. that's right. I forget. It is New York State. I do forget that anything can happen there. <laughs> but I thought when you were talking about the levels early on, uh, I thought there were cautionary tales that you had seen clearly from earlier Kickstarters. Had you conceived of things that were of a scope? You're like, oh, this would be really fun to do. And then you said, oh, my God, that's going to take us 10 hours each. Let's not do that. Or did you shy away from all of those at once, having seen campaigns that had involved those? Well, every step of the way, we were talking about that. You know, uh, we, we kind of, we, there were definitely things that we could, you know, we could have added on a radio show or a animated <laughs> film or, you know, or, or, a you know, a, a dance recital. Uh, but, you know, in the end, we, we focused, we honed in on things that we thought would be, would first add to the project in a significant way that was remain true to the project and also things that we really wanted to do. We didn't want to, you know, suddenly find ourselves on the hook for, drawing a thousand code monkey pictures, you know, and coloring them ourselves or something like that. You know what I mean? We are on the hook to sign, I think, 3,500 books, (laughs) which is fine. You know what I mean? But that's, uh, you know, that that will... It's going to be a hell of a day. (laughs) It will indeed. But yeah, you know, so we added on things like, you know, the, like, uh, Jonathan's going to go back in the studio to do a, uh, acoustic album, uh, recording the songs that inspired the book. Uh, and that's, you know, that's something that he would, had been hungry to do for a long time. And, and, you know, it made for a perfect stretch goal. And, and similarly doing this children's book based on Jonathan's song, The Princess Who Saved Herself. I mean, I've been doing a lot of thinking about children's books and writing children's books recently. And so this, this, this was also another one of those no-brainers. It was like, yes, that's that's something that would be a great stretch goal for us. Something that we really want to do, and we think that the uh, you know the folks who have already pledged would really enjoy getting as well. 
Now, it seems like you had one communication problem that you've addressed along the way. And I wonder if this stems in part from the fact that people, well, A, people on the internet have mixed reading comprehension skills, as we all know, uh, of various levels. You don't need to t- pass a test to use the internet. And so you can read anything you want into words that say other things. And the other is international pledges that anyone in the world who's got a credit card um, can, can pledge, I think. Uh, so you had said hard copy trade paperback. And it seems that some people got confused by that. But the minute you had one pledge, there. You couldn't go and edit the copy, if I right. recall correctly. Right, yeah, so yeah. Did that wind up being a, a big deal? I know you had explained it, but do you think people are, are still, some people are still confused about that, a hard copy versus hard, you know, cover copy? Well, we, we answered, I mean, we addressed that very early on because we realized it was potentially cause for confusion. And, uh, you know, we saw a few people here and there saying, I just ordered, you know, I just uh, pledged to get a hard cover, you know, of Code Monkey. It's awesome. And uh, so we, you know, we wanted to get in there and make sure that people understood that uh, this was, that everything was going to be a trade paper. Paperback. We use the term hard copy to uh, distinguish it from digital copies because we're giving digital copies away as well. And so we, you know, we answered that in comments or we addressed that in the fact. And then, and then towards the end, we also, I, I, I was like, you know what? Let's let's be really upfront about this again and mention. I mentioned it two more times in our updates, and I also put it at the head of the whole page. So uh, you know, I we wanted to give people every opportunity, you know, to, to step away if they if that if not getting a hardcover was going to be make or break for them, you know. In the end, I, I I think it's the kind of thing that mattered probably to very few people, but we, you know, wanted to err on the side of being as transparent as possible. And um, oh, yeah, and I don't al- think someone would suddenly say, "Oh, it's oh, it's only a paperback book." Well, I'm certainly not going to to purchase that. But you also, I think you noted in one of the updates that people could uh, revoke their pledge or change their pledge level at any point. Yeah, so yeah, you didn't feel like people were stuck. Yes, and we, yeah, we, yeah, and and it's also you know having done this when my album Artificial Heart came out, I, I did this. Uh, this sort of special edition box with a bunch of fancy things inside. And it's always the case that no matter how well you explain something <laughs> or no matter how hard you try to get things in the right place on time without being broken and having the right size shirt or whatever, uh, there are always going to be some people who are disappointed, whose expectations um, uh, you know, didn't match up with, with what they ended up getting. And, and it's, you know, I, we'll, we'll make it right with whoever, whoever is, uh, is not satisfied and and you know we as Craig said we tried to be tried to be as clear as we could about it i don't suspect it'll be a, a huge problem and if it is you know we're, we're happy to refund somebody's pledge it's not uh, those kinds of things it's just just becomes a customer service issue mm-hmm. and i believe in excellent customer <laughs> service. That's, that's what i hear about you. that's actually the first thing i hear about jonathan colton is he has excellent customer service exactly. such nice oh he's that customer service <laughs> guy isn't he that's what craig newmark only does customer service now on craigslist so i think you know i think you got something going there the, exactly the digital side is interesting too because gosh i've talked to uh, several people on the podcast about distribution of of digital books and digital comic books that until Maybe the iPad and, you know, there, was tool, there were tools before that, but until the iPad then kind of pushed the industry maybe to get even more robust about it, there weren't terrific ways to read books or comic books on portable devices. I mean, the Kindle was the closest thing, but didn't do graphics well. You're releasing the digital version in a form that people can use with, is this right, with Comixology's reader? And uh, Oh, no, there'll be, actually, I'll explain that to me, because I know Comixology, I have their app, of course, and I spend amounts of money that I would prefer not to disclose each month using their <laughs> app. So, uh, but, but explain how the digital format will be delivered, because I think this is actually an interesting aspect of why people would opt for the digital format these days. Yeah, we, um, I mean, we had the option, of course, of providing people with PDFs. And that, uh, in, in some ways, that would be, uh, 
consistent with some, you know, some aspects of our, of how we've come up, you know, with, uh, you know, having a DRM free PDF. But honestly, when I sit down to read comics on the iPad, on a tablet, I, I'm reading them through Comixology. Uh, it's just a really great, uh, system for reading a comic. It's, uh, it's, it's basically kind of become the industry standard. And the folks at, Com- at Comixology are incredibly friendly and, and kind, and they've been helpful to me. They they helped me put out Vision Machine back when. Uh, they're totally indie friendly. Um, and then in, in the last, uh, well, I guess the last year or so, a group, uh, a new company started called Monkey Brain Comics, which was founded by uh, independent comic uh, creators and um, is basically designed to help indie comics people get their stuff out uh digitally um and uh they've got just great comics that they do and uh you know i've been talking to them and uh and it just made total sense for us to partner with them so we're distributing uh through comiXology and through monkey brain through comiXology if that makes sense. well i see so they're actually like a facilitator they help people get the formatting do all the work they need to do to then be listed in comiXology yeah yeah exactly they'll handle all of the actual dealing with comiXology i mean that's something you know that's something that's not would not have been too hard for me or us to do ourselves but uh, but you know, just doing it with Monkey Brain just made a lot of sense. I basically we just wanted to do, to to do this, you know, with folks that we thought were really awesome and indie friendly. That's great, and it's sort of that's extending the ecosystem too. Is I keep seeing more and more tools that are for crowdfunding or for electronic distribution that people who don't have the you know the the skills they're not going to learn InDesign or whatever specialized tools or Perl scripts or whatever they just want to get their creation into this form and they can do part of it, but they need someone to facilitate making it and then getting it to the distributors and handling that part for them. It's that's great that um, and nicely named company too. Much. Yes, exactly. Convenient. Yeah, perfect timing. So you launched the campaign. You got a lot of exposure about this because people – I think this is the thing. And you know, I'll say this. I'm going to say this blatantly about you guys is that people love what you do. They love your work. And it's – I mean there's that – You know, people love Justin Bieber also. But people don't get to talk to Justin Bieber. You guys are interactive with your fans and you don't treat your fans like – you know, it's like quote fans unquote. It's – these are people who you appreciate and you demonstrate this appreciation you know, almost every day on Twitter, on your website, in personal you know, appearances. You interact with people. You're not up on a, you know, even if you're on a podium, you're not, you're not putting yourself on a pedestal while you're on a podium. It's a very dangerous position to be in. Uh, but that, that kind of direct connection, that kind of love people have for what you do seems to come into this. So you got a lot of coverage. People are like, oh, this is two guys. These are guys who are creators. They're going to own the thing and they're bringing in all these other artists. You zoom through the target in seven hours, uh, seven and a half hours. What happened then? Did you have all this planned out? Like what the next stage was going to be as you, you know, grew and grew, as you hoped to maybe grow and grow and grow and grow. You didn't come up with this on the moment. Well, we, we had a definite stretch goal in mind, and mm-hmm. uh, they basically got through that stretch goal before we could announce it. So um, <laughs> it was nuts. You know, That's but, good. Yeah, we were, I, have, I found a piece of paper from one of our planning sessions that had the $39,000 uh, number from the budget from what it would take to actually make the thing. And then it had uh, it had a couple of stretch goals, one at forty nine thousand and another at fifty nine thousand. <laughs> it's very sweet that you guys uh, are so that modest. Was, you know, this is a very sweet thing. <laughs> well, you never know. You never exactly. know. I mean, I, no, it's good to be I, conspicuous. But it's. I think. I, no, I think it's actually. It's part of the. I would say. Like, I'm going to embarrass you guys. It's part of the charm of what you do is that you're not expecting that. It's not like I'm going to launch this thing and I'm going to get a half million dollars. You know, there's been this. Not say controversy, but there's been some blowback from the uh, Veronica Mars and Zach uh, Braff. Uh, 
Kickstarters where they've raised millions of dollars and people are like, hey, these guys have money. Why are they coming to us? And it's like, because they want to get their fans involved and because they want to see if there's interest. They don't want to go, con- you know, did, did that come up at all with what did people, did you get feedback like, hey, why are you guys, uh, you, you're loaded, of course, comic artists and singers are all loaded. Uh, <laughs> why did you try to come to us for money? Uh, no, I mean, I think I think we were both kind of uh, sensitive to the fact that the Zach Braff thing was going on, and and hoping that he was not going to get any of that on us. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it is it is a weird thing, and I I as excited as I was about uh, how well we did, and as thrilled as I am, you know, it also the burden, the responsibility burden increases. As that dollar amount goes up, and I, I do feel like there's there's a point at which you can cross over when it's like, oh, well, this is amazing, we're doing really well, and you can then, it, if it gets too crazy, and if you are not the right kind of person, it can tip over into, oh, whoa, they're doing really well, and those guys are jerks, you know? And, and I think we we tried very hard to make sure that as things were going crazy that we were these stretch goals that we were creating were dumping that energy back into the project so that as things got bigger and bigger it wasn't just us who were benefiting but it was everybody it was all of our backers and it was all of our creative team and it really felt important to not just take the money and run but to but to scale the project up uh, as the enthusiasm for it scaled up I think you did a beautiful job with that too, because I felt as a backer, every time I got email about what was going on, it was, it was, Hey, we just raised, or we have, you know, we've just raised this additional amount. Now we are adding, now instead of it being 60 pages, it's going to be this. Now you're up to, what's the final thing? Is it 96? It's going to be a 96 page comic, right? At the 104. End It'll probably end up being 108, <laughs> actually. It's almost twice as long as the, uh, what we originally planned on. We plan on 60 and it's probably going to end up being 108. But that's sort of lovely where, where you're using the economies of scale. Now, the bigger it gets, the more you can take the fixed costs and spread them out over more people instead mm-hmm. of saying, well, you know, we're going to pocket the extra money. And there's nothing wrong with making money, of course, but it's, it's the, it feels like you took something that's very much in the spirit of this whole endeavor, that you're in it with your supporters. They are coming to you. They are your patrons. They are your fans. You want to give back to them. And, and so at each of these levels, you're giving – sometimes I think at a lot of levels you are – Giving people who've already pledged, like, hey, you already pledged fifteen or thirty-five dollars. This is just coming to you because we got more people in, and others you added some additional targets people could participate in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, That's right. yeah, for the most part, yeah, I mean, the stretch goals uh, went to just about everybody. You know what I mean? Like when we up the when we up the number of pages, you know, everybody who has ordered a book will get a bigger book as a result. Um, when we add different stories, you know, when we added the Mr. Fancy Pants story or the, uh, the Joko funnies and all of that, that's just, you know, that goes to everybody who ordered the book. So, I mean, and that, you know, that's the real rising tide lifts all boats in action, which was just amazing for us. We were just very happy about that. And as Jonathan was saying, your, your contributors also, uh, and all the folks who are participating in this and the new people you've brought in, like, uh, like, uh, Ape Lad, uh, Adam Coford and, uh, Ruben Bolin of, uh, of, um, uh, Tom the Dancy Bug. Yes. yes, thank you. I want to say super fun pack. Comics. Yeah, yeah, that's that too. Yeah. One of the things he does. Uh, you've brought these additional people in and your existing folks, your your inkers, your letterers, uh, and so forth. They're going to get more work out of this also. You're going to be paying the, these people more money as part of the bigger Kickstarter as well. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's I mean that's, that's gonna be exciting. It's nice. Yeah, it's very nice. Uh, so the the thing that I hear a lot from people who are trying to figure out whether and how they get into doing crowdfunding is they look at something like this and they say, 
say, this scale is so far beyond what I'm doing. I want to raise $3,000 or $5,000. How many of these lessons do you think apply, having gone through this planning thing and raised you know, almost 10 times your original goal? How many of these apply to smaller scale projects? Do you need to be at this level for, for this kind of work to, to pan out this way? Well, I think it. I think the planning is is going to be, should be the same, no matter what what the scale is that you're working at, because ultimately, you know, the main challenge is that it's not free money. It looks like free money, but it is not free money. Um, it's it's uh, whatever you do, you need to you need to have a pretty good sense of what your budget is going to be to actually make the thing you're trying to make, and you want to make sure that your goal is. Uh, at least as big as that budget. Otherwise, that's a primary, primary Yeah, there are, there are a lot of people um, actually are losing money uh, with their Kickstarter projects, you know. Um, we definitely <laughs> are struggling hard not to fall into that camp, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. It's if you, if you set, if you set one of your, if you set just one of your tiers at a price that doesn't cover your costs, and then that tier goes crazy, you you suddenly are are at risk of having a big, gross number and being left with the zero dollars, you know, or if you don't take into account international shipping, which is a a thing that I did not plan well enough for when I did that uh, special edition box of Artificial Heart. And I had to write a very painful check at the end of that process. I have a friend who just finished um, international shipping his book, uh, his Kickstarter that he finished on time in April. And uh, the domestic stuff was great. And he got international shipping. And uh, his Kickstarter was in October of last year. International shipping rates went up dramatically in January. So he did not take too much of a bath. But it's even that problem where he had planned, done the research, put some extra stretch into it. And then the world community of postal shipping inspectors or something uh, decided to, to mess up with that. Yeah. Yeah, that things like that could easily happen to us if suddenly you know printing costs go through the roof. You know, we we, we certainly have risks involved. Uh, you know, hopefully we've built in enough cushion to accommodate all of that. That's right. One of your risks is uh, you know, supervillain steals world's printing supplies yes, or something. Yeah, exactly, that, that could happen. That's right. Let's pause to talk about one of our sponsors. Koopa Soundworks, an internet music label, has just released an album of video game-inspired music called World 1-2. The album covers a variety of music genres, from chiptunes to lush, fully orchestrated works. It's a great listen. The musicians on the album include both rising independents and legendary stars, including Manami Matsume of Mega Man, Kaiji Yamagishi of Ninja Gaiden, Akira Yamaoka of Silent Hill, Austin Wintery of the video game Journey, Eric Surke, one of the composers of Music for Spelunky, Stomage and Danimal Cannon of Metroid Metal, and many more. It even has a track by Chipsol, who wrote the music for Super Hexagon that few people get far enough to hear in full. The best part is that, like so many independent producers on the internet, they're not afraid to let you listen before you buy. Go to koopa.tv, that's K-O-O-P-A dot T-V, Thomas Victor, and you can listen to one of the 20 tracks there. Follow the link to buy, and you can try out the entire album, a song at a time. Then, because you'll like it like I do, plunk down 10 bucks and enjoy it for 10,000 listens. You might even get an extra life. The site has links to purchase individual songs or the whole album via Bandcamp and iTunes. That's koopa.tv, K-O-O-P-A dot TV, and the album is World 1-2. Give it a listen. And now, back to the podcast. So you're in the hard part now is now you have uh, now you've got to catch up on a on a week or months or sorry, a month or months worth of work uh, that you deferred to make this thing happen. You've got this pile of things to get done. What's the next like six months look like? It's looking pretty good, actually. You know, I mean, the, the bonus of this whole thing is that we are we we 
from the beginning, we were like, if we're going to do this, we want to do it with these really great people, uh, you know, with these real professionals, these amazing artists and uh, creative people. Uh, and I've worked with Tak and Jessica. Tak is the artist, Tak Miyazawa. He's just amazing. And I've worked with Jessica, the colorist, on Extreme X-Men. And I've worked with Simon Boland, the letterer, on a bajillion different projects over the years. They're all just, you know, they're, they're great at what they do, and they're total pros. They are on time. And so as long as I remain, you know, we remain total pros and I give them scripts on time, this thing will happen. And uh, so that's, that is a big bonus of being able to raise the money to, to pay people properly because uh, we're going to, you know, knock on wood, you know, barring, barring disaster, this thing should click along just fine. Uh, yeah. And of course, an equal, on the other side of things, there's an equal amount of work uh, that it's going to take to comparison shop for how we're going to actually manufacture all the things we've promised, uh, you know, source them, design them, print them, ship them. Yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, that's a, that's a big project as well. So uh, yeah, we, I mean, we've got, we basically got a, uh, you know, this thing is a, is going to be a full-time job for us until, until everybody has their stuff until, until later. I mean, this the year. good thing, I mean, and I got to say this is that the really great thing is that, you know, working with, you know, find, if you're going to do this with a partner, find somebody who is awesome. Find, basically do it with Jonathan Colton and you'll be in pretty good shape. I hear he's available. Uh, uh, not, for, uh, <laughs> not until later. I'm, I'm busy. <laughs> but, um, you know, Jonathan and I are both, I mean, I, you know, I, we went to, we went to college together. So we just, you know, we, we know each other. We trust each other. We have a kind of, you know, fundamental, I think we have a shared, shared values, but also, you know, we both have come up in the world, you know, professionally in a kind of similar way, a very hands-on way. So, you know, we're both very used to running our own business. We're also both used to, you know, like, like unloading boxes of things and packing things up and doing X, Y, Z. You know what I mean? Like we, I think on a, in a very practical way, we're both ready to tackle all of the little practical details that are involved and not, you know, we're not afraid of getting our hands dirty, literally. <laughs> well, it's true. It's because we are, because we are, uh, you know, independent, uh, creators who have done a lot of their own shipping. We actually have some expertise in the area, of shipping, <laughs> which is, which is not a not a thing that you always get when it's a rock star and a filmmaker a, slash comic book writer. That is a huge you know? thing. Shipping. It's funny how much shipping is the bane. Shipping is the bane of Kickstarter. Like everything else, <laughs> I would say that's what I hear constantly. Is like it's like the you know we had to pack forty thousand boxes and plenty of labels and then postage dot com. Ah. Yeah, I have to tell you if there's if there's one my my least favorite thing about my job as a professional rock star <laughs> is is uh, is t shirts. They are awful. Oh wow. And there's nothing nothing worse than the than the dynamic I have with t-shirts because it's like they you have to uh <laughs> folding them and or no the folding them the- counting them projecting how many you're going to that they're heavy you ship them you didn't bring enough you brought too many oh either way you lose it's like it's the worst <laughs> I it's have no at, idea <laughs> Oh, it's terrible! It is the. I mean, uh, that is that is the thing that is the bane of every every independent musician's existence. It's one of one of the first things that I, it's one of the only reasons I think it makes sense to have a label. If I never had to touch a T-shirt again, <laughs> yeah, which, I might I might happily sign over fifty percent of what I make to a label. Wait, you know? get oh intimate God. with the mugs we're going to be shipping. <laughs> yeah, mugs are bare. Mugs, are, m- the mug level is where we. Uh, I-, I think we can reveal now that uh, you know we tried to, to to scale these these different levels so that when people bump up, we you know that that we stand a good chance of making a little bit more money on the bump up. With mugs, we don't. So if you mugs, just, right. if, if you picked a mug, you you did the savvy. You you made the savvy pick there, my friends. Yeah, mugs mugs are our loss. Exactly. Oh yeah, I see the forty dollar the forty dollar pledge. No, wait, you got rid of one of those, didn't you? You you close? Did you close one? Oh of the yeah pledges? yeah yeah. I had a disaster. I I, I made a. 
because uh, at a certain point we added on, you know, because we we started off with mugs and T-shirts as our big fifty dollars bump ups, and then yeah. at, somewhere around the midpoint we were like, you know what, we've got a lot of people asking about stuff. Let's add posters and challenge coins as mm-hmm. as bump ups, and then but then suddenly you have different varieties, and people are going to ask, well, I want to get mugs and challenge coins, or I want to get T-shirts and challenge coins, or I want to get mugs, posters, and challenge coins, and so we had to add eighty dollar and one hundred and ten dollar levels for groups of two or groups of three of those things, and then a hundred and sixty dollar super swag level, which had everything. But in putting all those levels together and and actually making them active online, I goofed up and I priced one of those eighty dollar levels at forty dollars. And, oh, uh, no. and, and uh, yeah, it was a good thing that I was like sitting around, you know, checking my email uh, soon after that went public because a couple of people uh, jumped on that right away, and I was like, whoa, uh, <laughs> because yeah, we would we would swiftly have been out of business had that stayed up. But um, but I was able to. I couldn't cancel it, but I could go in and put a limit on the number of people who could sign oh, that's up. That's why for there's it. two at that level. I thought there were there are two interesting things here too. Is that well, or maybe three? I don't know. We all have ten by the time I finish talking. But there's there are a few things. There. One is that you you wind up with a substantial number of backers. This is almost eighty five hundred people, yeah. and um, so a substantial amount of money, but also divided you know neatly among among this large group. And you know Amanda Palmer's her you know big uh, promo- uh, the, the Kickstarter she did that got an enormous amount of attention was over a million dollars, but she had about twenty five thousand backers. So again, it divides out to a relatively modest amount between people. The other thing, though, that related to this is you didn't have a lot of bumps at the very top end. You offered some very expensive rewards. Some of them were limited, but you got the majority of the money, I think not um, totally unusually, but more of the money came from the sort of middle scale rewards instead of the top end. Sometimes the top end bring in a disproportionate amount of the total. In this case, I think it's actually a relatively small amount. You really had people say, I want the book, I want the music, I want whatever, and came in at that level. Well, Did that surprise you? You had not as many stretches at the for the pledges. Well, I I I, I think it, it came about. I think it was about what we expected. Probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the one big surprise. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan. The one big surprise was that I figured that the twenty five dollar level would be the most popular. That's the level where you you get the book and all the digital extra stuff. You know, so you get the book, you get the digital, the digital books, you get the the music, um, you know, the soundtrack for the album, and then and then that's also where we added a lot of the stretch goal stuff. And then we had a thirty five dollar option, which was the signed book. You know, it's basically the same as the twenty five dollar option, but you get it signed. And I, from the beginning, I was surprised to see that the $35 level and the $25 level were neck and neck, that there were sort of mm-hmm. equal numbers of people going for both of those. I didn't really anticipate that people would value getting the signed book as much as they do, which was nice. I mean, and it, honestly, it makes sense just given the fact that this is, you know, the whole nature of Kickstarter is that you are I mean, the fun of it, I think, is that you're part of, uh, you know, it, it forms a little community, you know what I mean? And it becomes this interactive thing where, you know, I'm constantly on there answering questions and, and talking to people and thanking them. And, and, and that sort of, I think that personal experience uh, is just becomes part of why people enjoy it. So the, I guess the sign thing started to make sense after I started to think about that. It was a bargain. It's $5 each for your signature. So uh, <laughs> it seemed like a good deal. It seemed like a good deal. Well, you guys seem to have done uh, really – I mean, I, I, I think I'm surprised about uh, – the only thing I'm surprised about is that you were so modest in what you thought the stretch goals would be. So how to come up with and then develop some really interesting stuff along – uh, along the way that's really made this into uh, you know it started as an interesting project and one that I was happy to back and then now it's just it's so multifaceted 
here's the thing about Kickstarter that I, I think does work for you or, or comes up for you as well is now you'll have produced these things, whatever profit there is at the end of this that you guys get to keep and, you know, and, and considering all the time, whatever, uh, you know, making a dollar an hour for your time or whatever that works out to be, you, you now <laughs> produce these things, right? Jonathan, you'll have a new acoustic album to sell. Um, you guys will have the, children's book you'll have the comic book series that you'll sell through comiXology mm-hmm. you're promising was it a month after kickstarter backers get it that's when it'll be for sale to the general public right right yeah yeah i mean and we were upfront about that from the beginning too you know there's some sometimes you'll have kickstarters where uh you know, the final product is billed as a Kickstarter exclusive, that it will only be sold to Kickstarter backers. And, you know, then that, that's, you know, that's fine for, you know, if, if folks feel like that's the, what works for them. But we definitely wanted to make sure that we could get this out into the world afterwards as well. And, uh, so, you know, that was, we were just totally upfront about that from the beginning that Kickstarter backers are going to get the exclusive first, you know, the, the, the first look at everything and a, a month exclusivity. Uh, but after that, yeah, we'll, we'll have the ability to, uh, to, sell the book in other ways and get it out into the world or the books i should say and somehow that's actually where the money really comes from as i understand is that you get the is that um you know the friend of mine who just did uh, matt boars who's an editorial cartoonist you know the kickstarter essentially paid nothing for his time he was able to print 10 times the number of books he needed to fulfill awesome. every book he sells now is gravy just went through a bunch of different comic he's got a whole series of comic cons and things he's going to and Canada, the U.S., every book is gravy. It seems like you're in, even with the scale of this, that you're in the same boat as that you guys will, uh, some undisclosed amount at the end, if you're lucky, will accrue to you to cover your time over a year that you'll spend working on this end to end, but that the real benefit will be that you have produced this and you have something you can sell in the future that's gravy. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. It's always a a question, you know, how much of the sales, uh, the ultimate future sales of these things have been completely cannibalized by the fact that people have already bought them. And I don't know, it remains to be seen, but that is, but that is certainly true. You know, I, I, I think we both thought of this from the start as a, almost like a, a pre-sales opportunity, yeah. uh, as much as it was a, a, you know, way of backing this thing in order to make it, to, to uh, allow it to get made. It's, it's people, were, people were making their purchase in advance, I think, is, is the way that we thought about yeah, this. Yeah, and kind of go, going back to your point, Glenn, about the fact that we had so many people uh, pledging at that 25 35 and also the $15 level. The $15 was the digital-only level where you get the digital books. And we had – those were our most popular pledges. And I was thrilled about that because – that meant that we had a ton of people. You know, we've got 85, what was it, 84, 8,500 people in the end. And, uh, you know, I mean, one of our dreams that we've not been shy about sharing is that we might be able to keep going and doing more Code Monkey mm-hmm. stories. Um, you know, like, if this becomes an ongoing series, that that is a heck of a, you know, a heck of a big group that we can tell about. Uh, you know, when, if and when that all happens, you know, uh, yeah, to, to have gotten 8,500 people, uh, to back it and, you know, put their cash <laughs> where their mouth is, that's a tiny fraction of the hundreds of thousands of people who saw this. And so even if the, you know, the next group, if you sold 8,500 more of things after the Kickstarter comes out, that's still a sizable amount of then, you know, sort of subsequent revenue. And it's not implausible at all that you get a group like that. But I, I mean, I think hundreds of thousands or millions of people are now aware of the project. Some tiny percentage of them put their money up in advance and then the rest of the world gets it later. Yeah. Knock on wood. We will see. <laughs> well, you, you know how we work, uh, Glenn. Uh, my spreadsheet predicts that 0% of people will buy them. <laughs> That's right. Don't give up your day job, Jonathan. Is that the? Uh... <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's too. I don't want. I, we are not optimistic about anything. Let's just be clear about that. Yes. That's good. Well, that means you're always pleasantly surprised. I would say in your universe, the universe you've created for yourself in this alternate universe in a bubble, you're always surprised and happy. 
Yeah, that's right. We've, that's we, the plan. Thank you, gentlemen, for talking about this. This is great. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, no, nothing so much for having Thanks us. very much, Glenn. And, le- and let us just say once more, thank you so much to everybody who jumped on board with this thing, because you guys astounded us every step of the way. And we are ridiculously grateful. Yes, thank you. You've been listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash new disruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email newdisruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. (laughs) 